scratch and sniff. It's a privilege today to talk to someone who's just as used to presenting a tough, no-nonsense news broadcast as she is singing, performing and indeed starring on London's West End stages. Her many TV roles include matriarch Frances Marsden in Emmerdale. And did I also mention she's a writer in her spare time? Ladies and gentlemen, Sandy Walsh. So Sandy, welcome to the show. Uh, were you always planning or hoping to be an actor from very early on? Well, yes, I think I was because I, my mother was a semi-professional dancer. Oh, right. My dad had a fantastic singing voice, uh, really good. And as a child, I was always sort of um, playing different characters for the family. You know, I was always into that. Um, and I didn't know when I was a child whether I wanted to be an actor or a journalist. I certainly loved research of any kind, you know, and, and sort of mimicking. So I, I, I felt a little bit of a, a split. I'm from a working class family and I didn't know if I could afford to go to drama school. Eventually I went to university and then did a postgraduate course. But I think that the careers have more in common than we realise. Mm. Certainly areas that do dovetail. Yes. But you established yourself as an actor. And did rep follow? It certainly did. I was very lucky because at the end of my course, just before I left, I managed to get an equity card, which then was a very, very precious commodity. Uh, very precious commodity, very <laughs> precious thing. Absolutely. Um, because uh, every theatre was only allowed two newcomer cards a year. And I managed to get, because it was a closed shop, not right. as it is now. And I managed to get one of them. I went to Derby Playhouse with a director who'd come down to Birmingham and I'd been working on this play with him and he asked me to go back to Derby and actually do it. Mm. So I was really lucky. I got that equity card before I left and then my very first job was at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield and it was a brand new theatre, brand new opening and it was very big because it was a thrust stage with the audience on the three three sides okay. so it was fantastic. Excellent I mean I've noticed that uh, a lot of actors talk about that rep is fading away now and soap seems to be the new rep I mean it, it does rep still exist? Not very much no and in fact it's 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 really sad sometimes working with younger actors who are kind of quite envious when they listen to the things I did when I was younger because, of course, rep was your training ground. Cutting your cloth. Absolutely, cutting your cloth, learning the tools of your trade and, and that's what I did. And younger actors, you're absolutely right, Nick, don't have that opportunity anymore. And, of course, the problem with that is, first of all, you don't get to play a wide range of parts and, secondly, you're not having to use your voice in the same way that you would in theatre. Apparently you went to Italy and you were a dubbing artist. You want to tell us a little bit more about a dubbing artist and what was Italy like? Well, Italy was fantastic. The reason I went to Italy was to see um, an old Jesuit friend of mine, Jesuit priest friend of mine who was working there. And then I just happened to meet someone, have a holiday romance and fell in love and oh. then went back to Italy to work dubbing films in Cinecitta. So oh, uh, right. that was... But quite often I was the only English speaking person dubbing films a lot of them were americans over there so i had a sort of adopt an american accent for certain roles uh pasolini's arabian <laughs> nights i remember was quite fascinating because i thought i'm not sure this should sound like this but anyway that's what the director wants so that's what i'll do give my legs a massage young man i'll massage up to your knees but i'm going to stop there is that so you'll do as i command take care young man I will explain very clearly that I want you as my lover. And to reward you as a lover, perhaps I will grace you with the title of Emir. I mean, did that sort of pave away quite well? Then? It, that was very good, oh. yes, it was. It was. And it, it also, you know, I began to use my voice in a way that I hadn't before, because obviously when you're working in the theatre and telly, it's not quite the same. Dubbing films, you really learn to understand your own voice. And so it was great experience. I 
Karen, you returned to England and um, you worked on some one-woman shows that went up to Edinburgh. And I particularly want to talk about the Edinburgh Fringe because it is such an exciting, vibrant place. I've been there once. But what is it like to perform up there? Well, I'd never been up there. Um, Edinburgh was great. It was 1989 was the very first time I went up. I'd formed a company with a playwright. And in fact, this year is the 25th anniversary of a show called Ecoside, which was called by The Independent a green play for our times. It won a fringe first because it was the... And, and we were amazed because it was, you know, my first visit up there. It was a, a one-woman show about the blowing up of the Rainbow Warrior okay, yes. by the French Secret Service. This is Ecoside In Flodden What is interesting, actually, is that I've just done a sort of little homage. I've just written a two-hander called Awaken, which I'm hoping to film very soon, because it was then a green play for our times, and yet we're still discussing climate change 25 years later. Quite. But anyway, going back to Edinburgh, it's a mm. great place, but a lot of competition. It's really hard because you're in so much competition with so many pieces and uh, I've been up there four times three times four times and done very well each time I have to say I, I, I'm very pleased with Do that. Do you secure a good uh, a good venue because obviously that that is uh... well the last one was the top venue the assembly rooms fantastic and, and the piece was actually sponsored by Reuters which was the oh. last piece to bring in the sort of two uh parts of my career, if you like, the journalism and the acting, because it was a piece about a one-woman, a female war reporter. They felt it was a, a good look at um, the way uh, the media reports war. Mm. And I did a lot of research at the BBC and top names advised me and helped me and they'd been out there. Tell me about the play that I saw you in recently and that, that's the last time we did, we did meet. I remember it starting... It looked like some very naughty Parisian sex scene. You're wearing your blindfold and it turns into something completely different. I mean, it was it was so clever the way the whole thing was turned on its head. Oh, thank you. And you wrote that and you starred in it. Oh, my God. Thank you very much. And I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And as that, as I was saying before, is the sort of homage to um, to Ecoside because of the 25 Absolutely. years uh, since. Yes, I, I don't know where I got that idea from. I, I just like... I mean, for me, the most interesting aspect of that is I wanted to play around with the mask idea. The fact that the audience could only see one person's eyes at the beginning for the first 10 minutes. Mm. And then for the second 10 minutes, they could only see the other person's because they the blindfold came off my character, a mask went on the other character. Mm. And then it was only at the end five minutes that the audience saw both characters' faces. And I wanted to play with that, actually. That, that for me, was I mean, quite... just to explain to people that you're dressed in rather sort of, well, uh, a nice little floaty negligee or whatever, <laughs> with a fluffy blindfold on, and you, uh, you're on the chaise long. But the person who comes in is not who you're expecting to come in, and it turns out to be... Turns out to be the girlfriend yes. of my son. That's it. But oh, I don't realise it at the beginning. And they have some issues with you. They have issues with me because I'm the head of a, of a, a company that is... Um, sort of selling the idea of being very green, but mm. in fact they're not really. They're just uh, creating lots of things to deal with green issues. And my son is basically uh, an eco-warrior and his girlfriend have come along to sort of try and uh, persuade me to speak on their behalf. But so it's, it, There's a sinister sort of uh, tone to the whole thing, though, because it's dealing with extremism. I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being green, but the way that is portrayed is uh, a threat to you. Well, yes. I mean, it was kind of based on things like the Bader-Meinhof gang, you know, that, that people, I think what happens eventually if, if people aren't listened to, mm. they may take very extreme acts to be listened to. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I think that 
when when people are being reasonable and they're not being listened to, I think they can then say, well, you're not listening to us, so we're going to do something a little extreme. So it's not so much you're trying to uh, point the audience in one direction. You're, you're just, just laying it out and, and making the audience make up their own mind. Well, I hope that's what I did, Nick. I was mm. very aware that I didn't want it to be a piece of agitprop. I mean, my, my views are my well, it's intelligent theatre. It allows people to have their own views. Exactly. I mean, my views are my views, obviously. And I was doing the piece because I want to expose certain issues. Um, not expose myself, obviously, even though I was wearing a negligee. <laughs> um, but I, but I um, yeah, I want to get people interested in something. And, you know, it, it, I think theatre has to be some exciting visually and, and it has to take little twists and turns, which I hope the piece did. And, you know, I'm going to extend it. And apparently this is going to be filmed quite soon. Where does the money come from and uh, will it be for, for a particular channel or...? Well, we're going to be working for nothing. Uh, the director, in fact, the director of the piece in the theatre was someone who had directed me in Emmerdale. Oh, and he okay. came to see me in a play I was in in January, a musical. And I said to him, look, I'm thinking of doing this piece. Would you be interested in directing it? And he said, I certainly would. And that was great because I hadn't got any money to pay him. And he wants to film it very mm. much. I mean, it was his suggestion. Mm. And uh, there'll be no money. The cameraman will do it for free. The actors will do it for free. Mm. The director will do it for free. But hopefully what I would like to do, and I think also Henry, the director, would like to do is put it forward somewhere as a short yeah. film. You do it for free, but there is hope that, that eventually the work gets out, for starters, and then the money might come back, hopefully. So. I think the thing, Nick, is you'll find a lot of people, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to George Clooney, of course, <laughs> but, you know, there are lots of people that use their commercial work to, to, to do what they want to do. Yeah. Yes, yes, because... The commercial work isn't always the work you really want to do as, as an artist, but uh, you do it because obviously that's your bread and butter and then maybe you can use that, you know, like advertisements, commercials, and maybe use that to help you do the work that um, is of interest to you. So the issue-based drama that you were working on, that you were writing, obviously that led into the, the you know, the journalistic side and, and interested in, in issues. When did you actually consider working for the BBC in the presenting capacity? Well, it was quite by accident, really, completely mm -hmm. by accident, because I was doing a commercial voiceover with a very well-known voice from Radio 4, Astley Jones, and he said to me, oh, gosh, you've got such a good voice, you should, you know, be in broadcasting. And I said, oh, I can't do that. I'm an actress. You know, I can't give up my, my work in the theatre. He said, well, you could, you know, you could go freelance. And I sort of thought about it. And as I say, because when I was younger, I didn't quite know, journalist, actor. And then I thought well, it would be nice to have something when I was resting that was lucrative and interesting. Mm. So I decided to contact the BBC World Service because I did want it to be something that, you know, people in England wouldn't hear, people in the United Kingdom wouldn't hear me because then they'd start thinking, oh, she's given up acting, she's not nice, an actress then. anymore. So it actually worked very well. You're with the BBC. So, I mean, tell us exactly what you were involved with um, at the World Service. Well, I started announcing... The Indian Council for Child Welfare was founded in 1952 and works for the welfare and development of children. As the population of under 16-year-olds is 300 million, the organisation certainly has a And news reading, mm -hmm. that was what I did on a freelance basis. And then I kind of started to want to get involved in presenting, so I suggested a series I've actually, I suggested a one-off. It was a one-off programme that I thought I would do called Children of Courage. Hello and a very warm welcome. I'm in the Indian Prime Minister's Gardens in Delhi and in a few moments, 16 children between the ages of 10 and 16 will be receiving awards for bravery from the Prime Minister, Narasimha Rao. The national awards for gallantry are given every year to children who have selflessly risked their lives to save others, often being severely injured in the process. These prestigious awards are presented to children from all over India, regardless of class or religion. 
I think I quite fancied myself as um, the Esther Ranson of BBC World Service. <laughs> I'd already I'd already presented children's television on ITV. Oh, wow, TV. have you? Yeah, played Fantastic. the guitar and um, sang. So I was interested in that. So I thought, well, What programmes were those, by the way? We'll Tell You a Story. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So I used to send in videos, uh, showreels for kids' TV, <laughs> and uh, they usually send them back. But uh, <laughs> that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, so I, I'd already done that. So I thought, OK, I'll suggest this idea. Well, they liked it so much, they said, oh, do a series, four 15-minute programmes. Well, it was quite terrifying. Mm. because I was new to the game but I sort of thought okay my one woman shows and the drama documentaries I did as an actress are going to serve me well because in a way you have to shape a radio program in a similar way to yeah, a no, one absolutely. woman show yep, absolutely. so that's what I did um, Children of Courage which I felt very privileged to do actually very privileged so tell us about some of the interviews you did um, you spoke to people like Barbara Castle how did those go? Well, again, I was very fortunate. I did a whole series, Good Books, which was a wonderful programme that used to be on the BBC World Service, which was basically 15 minutes talking about a book. Barbara Castle, who served with Healy in government, has chosen The Time of My Life and is here with me to discuss the book. Barbara, The Time of My Life is a colossus of its kind. Is that one of the reasons you chose the book? Well, of course, uh, partly because it's a very good book and particularly... Um, for those who lived through the period, a lot of the period, which he covered. Mm. And I interviewed Benjamin Zephaniah, Terry Waite. Yes, Terry Waite. Who chose, this was very unusual, as his good book, he chose The Letters of Kenneth Williams. Okay, Extraordinary choice, really, but very interesting. Mm. And uh, that was great. And lots of poets, lots of writers, John Banville, uh, Sunday Times literary editor. And I did a whole series of modern classic writers. I mean, good books. I, 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 I did lots of series of it. It was it was fantastic. I have to say there were two people I'd like to credit for really helping me in that side of my work. And that was Penny Turk and Anne Theroux who really encouraged me, and it was fantastic. Uh, They gave me lots of opportunities. So, yeah, I I feel very lucky. Talking about it now, Nick, reminds me of of, of the really good times I had making those programmes. And also First Night of the Proms. Yes, First Night at the Proms, I remember. uh, That was lovely, using a lip mic, you know, Mm. when you have to put the mic on your lip and making sure that you didn't suddenly go... Quiet when all the audience settled and you were still waiting. So were you, for... were you actually addressing the addressing the audience, or or, or it was uh, in the booth? No, it was yeah. just in the booth, uh-huh. talking to the uh, listeners. Uh, but you have to be careful, you see, because the audience goes quiet, but you still have to carry on talking. Yeah, you have yeah. to make sure you don't suddenly start whispering. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you actually call yourself a journalist or presenter? I'd call myself a presenter, Nick, Mm. because uh, although I've written scripts, although I've interviewed lots of people, we've talked about the the great personalities I've interviewed, I've never trained as a journalist. And I think I'm quite sort of um, respectful of that. I would never call myself a singer. I call myself an actor who sings Mm. because I think, you know, people who've specialised in those skills should be should have the privilege of calling themselves that. So I like to call myself a presenter. But the BBC didn't have any sort of snobby issues about, you know, you had to be Kate Hady with bits of shrapnel in your hair and stuff like that to to interview certain types of people. (laughs) Well, I hope not. Goodness me, that would have been very difficult. Um, No, no. I mean, I just, as I say, I got into it really by suggesting ideas for programmes. People liked that. And then, of course, was very lucky to present the very first interactive programme on the BBC World Service, which was News Talk. News Talk with with, uh, Robin Lustig. Yes. Which apparently won a Silver Sunny Award after the first eight weeks. So you must be doing something right, Sandy. I think we were, yes. I mean, I wasn't doing it all on my own. Rock on. uh, Yeah, absolutely fantastic Robin Lustig to work with. And we've worked very well together. That was was a great privilege. And uh, brilliant editor Nick Newman and, you know great producers so it was it was very privileged I mean Robin does occasionally say to me we were the first Sandy (laughs) 
Let me ask you about your interviews. What's perhaps the most harrowing or difficult interview you've ever had to do and the one you were at the same time most satisfied with? Well, I think it, in terms of the most difficult, I think it was on 9-11. Okay. And the uh, blowing up of the Twin Towers, well, the planes going into the Twin Towers, because uh, within 15 minutes, I, I, I was going, we prepared for the news, illustrated news bulletin for News Hour, and I was supposed to be doing a piece uh, with Damien Grammaticus starting off News Hour, which sure. was then, then being presented by Alex Brody. And but I was doing the the five minute illustrated bulletin, and everything was fine. And then suddenly, within fifteen minutes, everything changed, and I ended up going into the studio and suddenly having to speak to uh, Steve. Evans, who was at the bottom of the World Trade Center. And, and tell us who, who's Steve Evans? Oh, well, he was the economics correspondent at that time okay. in New York. And, um, you know, he, he was there. And whilst I was talking to him, I could actually see the second plane going into the Twin Towers and, and had to say to him, he said, Sandy, you obviously heard that. And I said, yes, I couldn't say what I'd seen. I just had to say, yes, we heard that. Uh, obviously, we'll get back to you as, as soon as we can, Steve. And that was very could you, you couldn't say what you were watching on TV? You, couldn't, you weren't allowed to? N not really. Because it hadn't because been verified by Reuters and all that? Exactly. And mm -hmm. also, it could have been a replay of something. You know, you have to stay very calm in those situations. And also, he didn't know what was happening. He just heard something. I couldn't say to him and the audience, oh, I've just seen another plane going into the other tower uh, because that would have been frightening for everyone. I mean, yeah. it, it was really, you were having to think on your feet the whole time. And I was really doing all the ex breathing exercises that I advise anyone to do because um, I was having to keep very much in control. So, I mean, that must be one of the ultimate tests for any presenter or, or, or journalist. I mean, how, how long were you on air for? Well, I was, I mean, it was Alex Brody then, who was the news hour presenter who took over. I mean, I was just going in and doing sure. the news, you know, um, every hour, every half an hour. But it, within the hour, everything was changing. Mm. You know, it was changing so quickly. Mm. It was extraordinary. Well, to be a part of something like that, just, yeah, I mean, mind-blowing, really. Just yeah. remind, the, the guy was okay with the correspondent? Oh, yes, yes, Fine. yes. Okay. okay, cool. Scratch and sniff. Now, Sandy, obviously we must keep in mind that primarily you're an actor. So before we discuss the numerous roles you've performed over the years on stage, screen and, of course, radio, let's segue via your chosen Desert Island Risks track, where you get a chance to choose a piece of music that inspires you professionally, personally or just because it makes your feet tap. Well, I'm not going to give away my age, but let's just say that I'm of a mature age and I only got married two years ago. And, uh, Congratulations. My, thank you very much. And my husband is a really uh, kind of almost obsessive fan of Van Morrison. Okay. And this was the song that was played at our wedding by oh. a, a friend of mine, actually, a very good jazz singer sang it. And it's um, Have I Told You Lately That I Love You. Oh, bless you. Bless you, Sandy Walsh. Have I told you lately that Have I told you there's no one above you? Well, my heart with gladness Take away my sadness Ease my trouble, that's what you do All the morning sun and all its glory Races day with hope and comfort And you fill my life with laughter You can make it better Ease my troubles, that's what you do Cause love is divine And it shows that it's mine like the sun Give thanks and praise 
Morrison and Have I Told You Lately That I Love You. You're listening to Sandy Walsh on SMS Online. So Sandy, you've um, had a host of roles on television and in theatre as well. Tell us about Peep Show. That's a good one. Oh, yes. And in fact, Peep Show is is quite iconic. You know, it was for the younger audience. So it was very cool to be in that. You know, all my younger friends and nephews and nieces. Oh, I suddenly became much more important than I had been before because I was in this iconic young person show. You know, Absolutely. So clearly there's been a whole host of roles over the years for new statesmen, Holby City, doctors, etc. But the big one for you, Telewise, has to be Francis Marsden in Emmerdale. It's not your birthday for another five hours and 38 minutes. You always remember things like that. It's part of being a mum. How did that go? Well, it's like most uh, castings for such a role as that because it was a big role. It was the female matriarch of a new family coming into the soap. So there were several screen testings. You know, you went for a read-through first of all and then you go for a screen testing and then you go for another one because they're matching you up, obviously, with your your family. Mm. But, um, yes, it was great fun. I had a lovely family. I'm still very friendly with the girl who played my daughter-in-law and on screen we hated each other absolutely hated each other I was the bossy mother-in-law but what I remember um, Sandy is that about a year or a couple of years earlier they decided to open the cast to the great British public shall we say I mean people who I don't know if they were professional actors but it was a bit like the X Factor I think finding your soap star and uh, they assembled the whole family and I thought when I saw them I thought this is fascinating they, they seem very good and everything but they sort of fizzled out quite quite Quickly, what, what, what was the um, what's the background to that? Give us a bit of gossip. Well, I don't really know that much about it. I know that we had we were having to sort of pick up the dregs of actually that yeah. had happened because that, as you say, that happened. Was it just a complete disaster then? Yes, I think it was because I think for two reasons. I don't think it's fair to kind of foist, if you like, upon. 
this is going to sound awful. And no, I don't no, 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 not at all. No. To, to, to be snobbish. But, you know, if you're an actor and you've trained in that profession. Absolutely. It's it's very difficult to sort of really think that someone can come in and do that without any training at all. Now, it does happen that you get people working in television that haven't had training, but this was... They, they had sort of won a competition. And it's kind of... I think it, dim, it made other people in the cast feel that their position was demeaned in some yeah, way. I understand completely. In some way. So... I, I think it was very difficult for the other actors. And as I say, when we came in two years afterwards, we were also, I mean, obviously we were all professional actors, but we were having to deal with slight animosity that uh, had kind of happened because of because of that. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a dangerous um, situation that hasn't occurred again. No, I, I mean, <laughs> I, was, I was very surprised that they, they did that, but I think... Uh, anything seemed to be game. You sang in the shower, you could sing for millions of people and, the, and acting and all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the problem is that, that there's more to acting or, you know, portraying something than just being able to say a few lines. You know, it's, it's not... You know, and particularly television work. But also the stamina you've got to... Have, to continue that and continue the quality of performance and nuance of performance. Exactly. And the thing the thing is, television is very much a different beast to the theatre because, you know, it's in the television you're learning lines for a very short period of time. You learn them and then they're gone. Obviously, you don't have to repeat them. So you can learn quickly and then just do it. And, of course, the performances are quite small and you need to be much more naturalistic. Having said that... I really enjoy working in small theatres. I don't like the huge, spectacular shows. You know, I've done Blood Brothers in small theatres and I've done Blood Brothers in very large theatres and I much prefer the smaller theatre. I quite like to see the audience. I, you know, I like to have that contact. The whites of their eyes. I, yeah, not quite, <laughs> not quite. But I do like to be able to have that feeling of, of, of a sort of rapport. Whereas when you get the really big theatres that seat two and a half thousand people, it becomes much more of a spectacle. And again, that's a different kind of performance. But as I say, you know, as an actor, you've got to kind of do all of those things. And if you work too long in telly, Big, uh, too long in theatre, big stages, you then have to adjust to going to into telly or film, much smaller performance. But it's it, it still has to have the intensity. And I think sometimes we can confuse being natural with being boring. Mm. And that's why when you watch American television, Often their television is really good. They're very natural, but it's a heightened natural performance, if you like. I don't know if that sounds a bit odd. No, but I understand. It, it's true, and I think sometimes we can confuse it in Britain. We're so used to the theatre, we can confuse, oh, being natural without being heightened, and that's where it's dangerous. I have to say, in soaps, when you see a really good actor that's come from the theatre and is really good, somebody I'm thinking of in particular at the moment on EastEnders, that, that it just shines. It, it's, it, it's oh, I know you're talking about. a heightened <laughs> performance. Think, yeah, no, absolutely. You're married, you have a home. Why would you even contemplate an abortion? It's not how we planned it. We didn't mean to get pregnant, it's an accident. It's a baby! Don't start with all that, we're just not ready. Oh, you were ready to run off and get married? How long have you known? A week or so. And you've already come to a decision. You've decided something like this in a matter of days. Why didn't you come and talk to your dad and me? Oh, I can't imagine why. That's our grandchild. Well, not really. Not yet. It's a child growing with every passing day. Mum, stop it. If you do this, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Did you feel you were well served by the scripts? Yes, I, I felt very lucky with my character because I think she... I had some great storylines. I mean, they were really brilliant. And, and you know, often people used to say, oh, it's great that Frances has got that storyline and, oh, it's brilliant that she's being feisty and she's a good matriarch, you know. People used to really like that. I think the only thing is sometimes the writers, they do have... It's a, it's a very difficult job writing for in a soap, writing for so many people. And 
I did occasionally get a line and I'd think, oh, no, that belongs to another character. I could hear it and see it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't for Francis. Yeah. And I'd actually say to the to the director or the writer, is this definitely my line? Is this what you want? And they'd go, oh, no, you're right, actually, Sandy. It's for somebody else. You know? I remember teasing you mercilessly at the time because uh, uh, I, I'm more of a Corrie watcher than an Emmerdale watcher. No, no offence to, 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 to Emmerdale. Although I think they missed a trick by not calling it farm when they, they shortened it. It should be farm explanation mark, but that's just um, <laughs> that's just me. But uh, no, every time, the few times I turn it on, you're, you're always sitting in, in some community um, hall knitting and going, oh, e bag of its parky. Well, you weren't, but, um, but yeah. No, I wasn't. I, def- I didn't knit. Frances didn't knit, Nick. I'm sorry. She certainly wasn't. She didn't knit. You're listening to Sandy Walsh on SNS Online. And just a reminder that if you want to keep in touch with us, why not follow our Facebook page, SNS Online, or Twitter, which is Scratch and Tweet. Past shows are available to be downloaded for free by searching for SNS Online on SoundCloud or Mixcloud by searching for me, Nick Randall. But back to Sandy. You told me um, that uh, towards the end uh, there were headlines on the sun when you were going around with a knife or something. What, I mean, what was no, going on there? It was much more dramatic than that. I went mad with an axe. Oh, an axe! An Forget axe. the knife. Yes, mm. I was actually. I sat on. Were, fil- you, were you very cross? A, a little bit. Yeah, right. Yeah. I sat on Phil and Fern's sofa on this morning discussing that <laughs> scene because it was quite a big scene for Emmerdale. Right. Mm. In fact, I suggested it and I didn't think the, the producer would buy it, but he did. Here's Johnny! Had you turned this into Jack Nicholson or something? Well, actually, that's what the son said. The son said, Brilliant. here comes Franny. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So how did that, how did that uh, resolve in the end? Was the character sort of uh, put in a sort of a, a cul-de-sac so that, you know, she couldn't really stay any longer? That I went quite to often Hull. happened. I ah. went to Hull. You went to I Hull. I went to Hull. To Hull I'm still there, apparently. To Hull in back. Hull. Ah, so you're not dead. Oh, no, I didn't die. No. So you could come back? Mm, I could, I suppose, but I'm not sure if that's likely. But you never know. OK, OK. Well, you know, watch your space, as they say. <laughs> Keep tuning into farm. I mean, never though. <laughs> I get too hungry for a dinner at eight. I like the theatre, but I never, never, never come late. I never bother with those people I hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. So let's talk about another string to your bow, the singing side. You were singing since presumably when you were a little girl. Yes, and as I say, my father had a good singing voice. My mother did as well, but that's kind of changed because she's, uh, you know, she likes a a good old cigarette, my mum. So her voice, mind you, I think mine's getting there as well, has (laughs) dropped. Her voice has dropped about two octaves, and I think mine's on the way down because I used to sing quite in quite a high voice um yeah i've always loved singing and in fact because you sang in the hilton and the the spice jazz club and and places like that as well as obviously uh blood brothers yes i have and in fact nick blood brothers was the only musical i wanted to be in Mm. and i got that from a very circuitous route actually because i think i'd i think i had auditioned one year and I didn't get it somebody else did and then the next year they were looking for someone to go to Italy to play Mrs Johnston in Italian and of course because I'd lived in Italy dubbing films you you speak it? yes (gasps) io parlo italiano molto bene (laughs) so so, uh, my agent said would you like to go out for it and I said yeah absolutely you realise loads of male listeners will be sending in their neck to you or pants or something oh lovely I usually wash them and send them back so (laughs) anyway Mm. Um, so you did it in Italian? No, That's... I didn't do it in oh, Italian because oh, oh, oh. I just did the casting in Italian. Okay. And in fact, I was being used as the interpreter for, for the producers because they didn't speak English. This was hysterical. Right. You know, I'd gone along <laughs> for an audition and there I am interpreting. But I didn't, um, eventually it didn't happen in Italy. But they said to me, oh, you've got to do it. You know, we'd like you for the West End mm. uh, for Mrs. Lyons. And I said, 
Great, thank mm. you. That would be wonderful. Fantastic. We actually share share um, Blood Brothers in common because um, I was in a college production. I auditioned for The Milkman, but I got, uh, I'll just read it here, I got the kid who plays dead. Uh, he sort of gets <laughs> shot, but he's pretending to die. And I tell you, I milked that death scene. I was staggering around no, because there was didn't. no lines. I didn't, have, I didn't have to sort of learn many lines, but I staggered around for about 20 seconds before I eventually, sort of, you know, just look at me for goodness yeah, that sake. that is milking. That is milking. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. It was a great, it was a great show. Absolutely and great I'm show. very lucky, actually, uh, Nick, because I've got um, uh, a recording of with myself and Stephanie Lawrence, who was an incredible Mrs. Johnston. Sadly, she died a few years ago, nice. but um, I have I have got that recording. And I think we should hear some of it. He'd have all his own toys and a garden to play in. Make too much noise without the neighbours complaining. So the trays to take meals on, like with both wheels on. Yes. And he'd sleep every night in a bed of his own. He wouldn't get into fights. He'd leave matches alone. You'll never find him. Then I'm blinding. Absolutely not. When he could never be told. Stand if you walk for hours on end of the floor. He grow up to a credit to me. So how long were you in Blood Brothers for? I was in it for just over a year and then I went back every year to cover Mrs Johnston and Mrs Lyons. It was fantastic. It was really good because I'd, I'd done a year and I didn't really want to do it anymore. I mean, a, a long West End run is very tiring. Fatiguing, I would imagine, after a while, yeah. Eight performances a week and, of course, you don't get to change the lines. So, you know, you really have to, every performance you've got to make it sound as if, you know, those lines, it's the first time you've said them, obviously. And so a year was long enough but I was really lucky because I would go in to cover Mrs Johnston and Mrs Lyons when they were on holiday and that was great. Yeah, it was really good. And then I also went on tour, did a six-month tour of, of England and Ireland okay. with it. You know, my problem with plays like this. I mean, you know, you pay a fortune to go into the theatre, but I'm always so worried about the actors thinking, oh my God, I wonder if they've got a headache tonight and they must be so fed up, you know, munching our popcorn and all the rest of it. I, 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 I empathise far too much. Oh, no. I mean, I think, I don't think you should worry about the performers. <laughs> you should just go and, and, and enjoy yourself, okay. Nick. Absolutely. It's even better if, they, if they're having a nice time, though. So. Yes. But, um, okay, I'll just throw that in. Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. Cadbury's Flake. The crumbliest, flakiest milk chocolate in the world. Cadbury's Flake. The crumbliest, flakiest milk chocolate in the world. Cadbury's Flake. The crumbliest, flakiest milk chocolate in the world. Sandy Walsh there getting very excited about a certain chocolate bar, although other variants of the same product are available. And by the way, loads to check out on Sandy's website, sandywalsh.com. The facts I have before me hardly make a human story It's a personal quotation that I need I've one that should do nicely It'll fit the bill precisely Just the thing the population likes to read I shall forever be your So Sandy, we have to talk about Ivan Novella's Valley of Song because uh, you starred in that, or one of the stars in the uh, original cast in the theatre and also you're on the CD as well singing. Fantastic! Yes, an original cast recording. And Tell us about the actual musical. Apparently he, he didn't finish this. He, he snuffed it too early. He did, and other people came in and finished it off for him. Well, like Sherbert. Yeah. <laughs> Schubert. Yeah, yeah Schubert. That's right, unfinished. I'm just it. being facetious. Just ignore me. It's like, anyway. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting piece. Lots of Ivan Novello fans loved it. I don't think it's a piece for everybody. I very fortunate enough to be in it. It was a great cast. It was slightly, it wasn't completely West End. It was sort of off West End, the Fimbra Theatre, which is a great fringe theatre. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was a great production. I played the older leading lady, uh, Mrs Brewster. And uh, it was a great part, and I had some great reviews for it. Yes, it was. It was just a, a nice piece to be involved in. It was. It was a kind of period piece, you know. Set in the valleys. Set in the Welsh Valleys, that's right. Absolutely. Give us a little blast of Welsh, come on. Oh, no, because I didn't actually play a Welsh character. Oh, didn't you? I was the only English character in it. She had um, 
gone to Wales with her husband and they owned most of the valley, actually. Oh, okay, right, okay. Uh, a very rich landowner, Mrs Brewster, who was uh, widowed, flirted with the local um, reporters. That's not why I had good reviews, <laughs> by the way. That was on stage, I flirted with the reporter. So what would you recommend? I would heartily recommend the song Where Do We Go From Here, which is all about um, women's emancipation. Maria, in this uncertain world, if there's one thing a woman can be certain of, it's that a man is the one thing she can't be certain of. Men are erratic, one moment ecstatic, and then so phlegmatic you hardly exist. You're adored, well ignored, when he's bored, you are flawed. I'm an aquilum, but really could kill him, I don't even thrill him, and love to be kissed. He's a brute, what a brute, but he's cute, really cute. There, singing her heart out in Where Do We Go From Here from Ivan Novella's Valley of Song. You tend to be in a lot of plays which are written by British playwrights like Pinter, Akebourne and Bennett. I get the impression you seem to be quite inspired uh, when you're writing your own material with that sort of wry, quirky view of the world. Would, would that be right? Oh, that's, that's, that's a question and a half, Nick. Um, I wish I had... Oh, a tenth of the talent that uh, Bennett and Pinter and Aikborn have. I, I think I've learned a lot by doing their plays, yes. And what is usually really good, I think, is I tend to like listening to people and the best lines you get are always when you are listening to conversations. Mm. I always remember one that on the, on the I, bus and things. Yeah. No, it was it was in a supermarket <laughs> okay. actually, and I was doing a one-woman show about the 1930s, which featured um, a sort of Auntie Gladys, who was kind of recalling her life in the 1930s as a young woman. Anyway, I was in I was in the supermarket and I saw this um, old lady and her daughter pushing the trolley and I suddenly heard the uh, old lady who was a bit like Auntie Gladys say oh I just fancy a sausage (laughs) and I was sort of walking behind and the the daughter wasn't listening the daughter was off somewhere else and then she said I used to fancy a sausage when I was pregnant with you (laughs) (laughs) very simple line and I used it I used it and it always got a laugh know things that my my mother said to me you know like um she said oh honestly I sometimes look in the mirror you know and I think oh dear who's that funny old bugger looking back at me (laughs) and it's those sort of little quirky sayings that 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 are very real Mm. that if you can try and use them Mm. in something they they're more acceptable to the audience because they immediately recognize those words those sentences you're listening to SNS Online with my special guest, Sandy Walsh. Well, Sandy, something that clearly gets flagged up by actors who are on the show. Um, so it's something I'm going to put to you as well. What's your take on ageism 
um, in the acting profession because surely there's so many rich roles that should be available for people, character parts. Now, Louise Jameson, uh, when she was on the show, she talked about this and how it is still a big problem. Uh, Rebecca Front recently has been um, talking about this, and I think one of her blogs as well. What's your, your take on that? Is it still a real struggle? I think the problem is there aren't enough good female writers. Right, absolutely. I think that is a problem. That's why I've uh, I've always written part of my work. I've always written, but as you know, the last piece I wrote wasn't deliberately two females. I didn't do that, but certainly it was good. I felt to have an older woman in it, i.e., myself, and I I think the reason is that there are lots of male writers. There aren't enough female writers, but I also think that. Women of a certain age become a little bit more invisible. But I think that's happening with men as well. I think we live in an age that there's quite a lot of focus on the young. And yet, of course, we, as the grey vote, are very important. And I just think, actually, that if you don't have older actors and older actresses, you're not really getting a view of a balanced society. Yes, I totally agree with you. So I I think the answer is that maybe women have got to start writing more and incorporating those roles into the pieces. And I think the media in general have got to sort of not just pay, uh, you know, respect and say, oh, yes, we will do this. We will encourage more older women to be involved or older men, but that they start seeing almost the ageing process as something very natural. And it is great to have older people in things because it's representative of of society. And of course, the, the population is is ageing. I mean, the, the, I don't know, the 60 to 80 population is going to be, I mean, the nursing homes are going to be heaving in about 20 years, apparently. <laughs> But let's hope all the new plays aren't about nursing homes, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you um, uh, think that men can write for women or is, is it... The... I think a lot of men can write for women. I mean, Alan Bennett is a great okay, example. Yeah. Uh, he can write for women very well. I think that it's just that in our, I suppose, decision-making areas, a lot of men, you know, when you think of, of government... A lot of the British government is male. A lot of big business is male. But I also think that, that when we when we want to entertain, I suppose what we what we still want is is um, something to look at that that looks nice. And maybe older women are not considered lovely to look at. And I think that's a shame because when you look at actresses like Judi Dench. Helen Mirren, they are, Penelope Wilton, really great actresses that look good and look fine. And and we and love watching them in those roles, Maggie Smith. I mean, all that lot. And I, I, would, I would love to see so much more. I think it is changing. But, of course, you know, the, the, the competition is as well. There are so many of us now. I mean, that's, that's also the problem. You know, there are so many actors and actresses that casting directors have got a huge choice of people to choose from. But I think what tends to happen is they go for the safe choice sometimes. They don't go out of their... Or as Rebecca zone. Front said, uh, they'll cast somebody who might be in their 40s and, and, and have them 10 years older rather than getting somebody who is 10 years older. Yes, and sometimes you do see very incongruous casting. She, uh, Rebecca's absolutely right because you sometimes see a casting where you, you have a mother and a daughter and you actually think she could never be her mother. Never, <laughs> never, ever. She's just far too young. So you're right, it, it, it's, it's odd. I, I, I don't know. I'm thinking of Gail and Audrey in Coronation Street. I think it's about three years between them in real life. Or something. Oh, really? <laughs> well, it's, yeah. But... But, uh, yeah, but actually they do look very different. They, yes. They, she does look much older than, than the daughter, doesn't she? So it, so it works. Mm -hmm. but, I think we're just used to it now. Yes, maybe, maybe, yeah. I must admit that I find some male writers, I was one in particular, and I certainly won't mention him, um, who tries to write really well for women, and he is an extremely good writer, but there's a sexualization to the women is always there, but I feel gets in the way of, of really good characterization, And I struggle with that. And I, I, I just see it as a fact that it's, it's, it's a man writing for a woman. Perhaps I'm being a bit black and white about it. No, no, that's, that's very, very true. I mean, it's... Uh... I mean, I'll mention the name, but we'll bleep it out. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I... 
I don't, I don't know what to say to that. No, really. no, no, absolutely. It's it's, it's difficult. So, but it? basically, more more female writers. Let's get the workshops out there. There you go. That's something else. Another string to your bow. A I writers course. Definitely more for female writers. But I have to say that the play I did before Awaken was a two-hander and an actor uh, playing my father in the two-hander, and I think I I wrote reasonably well mm. for him mm. because I based it on my own father. Right. So I think write about what you know. I think that's very true, Nick. And maybe sometimes it becomes more about plot than characterization mm. and not writing for character. And um, and I think the pressure on a lot of writers is also to write for plot and not for character. Mm. I mean, writers on soaps, you know, are actually told what to write about yeah. by the storyliners. That's not a very easy thing to do. It's, yeah, as Julie said uh, in the, the interview, she was saying how how hard they work because they have to essentially have the characters explain what's going on for people who have missed the last one, but do it in a way that seems very naturalistic. And uh, so there's a lot of repeating going on, but without writing, people... Writing by numbers, you know, it's, it, it really is. Yeah. But there still is brilliance in, in, in that art form as well. And the soaps are actually where a lot of older female actors yeah, get work, absolutely. definitely. A- absolutely. I don't know, uh, more soaps? <laughs> Setting care homes. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what a wonderful prospect. That's a really great prospect. I think we could be a bit more expansive than that, surely. I think so, mm. I think so. You know, we could have um, uh, a department store. Oh, that's been done, hasn't it? Are you being served? Yes. No, but maybe... Mrs Slocum's pussy. <laughs> Molly Slocum. You were dying to get that in, weren't you? Well, why not? This is Scratch and Sniff after all. (laughs) So, sadly, there's been some pretty damn sexy reviews, which I I must read out some uh, to the great British public here. Sandy Walsh displays an intelligent sensuality says The Guardian. Do you want to um, discuss that at all? That was in the uh, European premiere of a Canadian play called Patience. And uh, that was my very first review in the business from Michael Billington. So I'm very proud of that. It's not often you get a review from Michael Billington. The piece was phenomenal. It was a great piece. And uh, several people said it should have gone on for a West End transfer but it didn't, which is rather sad. It was a really good piece. Compellingly vulnerable, the times. Um, Sandy Walsh is a faultless performer with the audience rapport and generosity of delivery of the greatest of her profession, the Scotsman. Yes, that was for a one-woman show about the 1930s that was performed at the Pleasance Theatre in Edinburgh, yeah. Walsh's voice is vibrant and powerful, whilst her presence multiplies the intensity of a performance. That's the stage. And also by the Scotsman, uh, apparently you are tender, frightened and convincing. I mean, it's working for me. <laughs> Gosh, yes. Oh, dear. Yes. Uh, yeah. I've made Sandy Walsh blush, <laughs> but in a, in a good way. I'm just going to tell you a little funny story about Emma, Emma Dale oh, yes, being, being recognised in Somaliland. I wasn't on holiday, but I was actually working for the BBC out there. And I was recognised from Emmerdale. By, by a man from uh, Chechnya. Fantastic. He was working in Somaliland, um, demining. He was he was helping Halo, mm. the Halo Trust, demine, and suddenly came up to me and said, Emmerdale! I couldn't <laughs> believe it. He'd, he'd trained up in Aberdeen for the Halo Trust and every night for a year had watched me so knew, he knew, he remembered more of my storylines yeah. than I did. You That's know. fantastic. It was, it was very funny. I dined out on that one. <laughs> You're here with me, Nick Randall, on SNS Online uh, with my special guest, Sandy Walsh. Now, I want to hear a bit of you singing, Sandy. Um, you have brought some CDs along, haven't you? I have, actually. And I think there's one that you heard that you particularly liked, wasn't it? It's wonderful. It's awfully nice It's 
So, Sandy Walsh, thank you so much for being my uh, special guest today on Scratch and Sniff Online. We have a celebrity goodie bag for you, as we do with all the guests. Gosh, how lovely. Thank you so much. That's I didn't right. expect that oh, at no, all. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, That's gets a nice really... One. Yes. A little, that... bit, little bit of alcohol in there, a little bit of uh, chockies and all the rest of it. So, yes. That's really lovely, Nick. Thank you very much. And I, I've enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, thank you for, for picking up on so many things that I'd, I'd actually forgotten about. Oh, and it's great to remember all of those uh, wonderful things that have happened in my life. So thank you. Fantastic. Sandy Walsh, thank you so much. Well, we're Manchester bound for the next two shows in the series, beginning with Ben McGarvey, a.k.a. Minute Taker, to discuss his particular brand of music and his forthcoming third album. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. Thank you.